Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus. It makes every single Sunday such a big deal to us, for we are taught in your word that the believers in Christ would meet on the first day of the week, a Sunday, to worship you because Jesus had risen. Father, we thank you for that. And while many things in the world have changed, that truth has not changed. We are still here believing, and we are still here being defined by that truth that your son was killed on a cross, and now he lives. Father, we're here today to worship you, and we ask your blessing on the word of God today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn the Bible to Mark chapter 16. It's the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use a pew Bible there, page 938. The black pew Bible there, page 938. I want to say thank you to all you who made it out. I realize that it's cold. We couldn't get the car door open this morning. Uh, my kids had to all climb in through the driver door, which I fought to get open, and they all climbed over the seat just to get into the car. That's how cold it was, right? And, uh, and I've probably got a little bit more reason to be here than y'all do today. And so I really appreciate y'all being here. Uh, I want to say, um, when it's super cold or the weather's bad, we're probably not going to cancel. We're, we want to be here but do not ever feel like you have to put yourself in danger to get here. Everybody understands that, right? I'm glad that y'all are here, but obviously we're missing about 100 people this morning. Um, and I hope they're home and safe. If their driveway's not cleared, they shouldn't have ventured out. If their steps were icy, they shouldn't have ventured out. I just want to make sure that everybody knows that, right? You don't have to go to church if it's in dangerous, icy conditions. We want you here. We want to be here. But with that said, uh, please know you do what you got to do. But for those of you all that made it, despite the freezing cold temperatures, we're glad to be here. We've been going now for a long time in the Gospel of Mark, and here we are at the very end, the final chapter, the resurrection. I never forget in the fall semester of 2001, I was at North Greenville College, now University. And I was studying, I was near graduating, I was uh, a junior in college that year, things were going well, and I had signed up for a 9 a.m. fall semester biology class. I was never good at biology, um, but that was my class. And I also was trying to, to stay fit, I guess I would have been probably at the time 20, 21 years old, and was trying to become a man, and I was taking uh, men multivitamins, uh, like a, a men one a day or a, a mega man vitamin, I was taking some of those. And uh, one of the rules that you do not do is take that on an empty stomach. Well, in college, nobody cooks breakfast for you, so I often went without breakfast, and I still took the vitamin, and I made it to my 9 a.m. biology class, and within no time, I was very, very sick. I ran out of the class, sick to my stomach. Closest place was the cafeteria. I ended up in the cafeteria. When I got in the cafeteria, on that fall morning, it was September the 11th of 2001, I went to the cafeteria to throw up, and on the TV, I saw the very beginning of the attack, the 9-11 New York City World Trade Tower attacks. I don't remember if I was sick after that. I don't remember what happened. I remember being captivated by the TV for hours. I remember thinking, what is going on? Most of y'all remember that as well, September 11th of 2001. In my life, and I'm 38 years old, in my life, that is clearly the biggest thing that has happened. Without question, the most memorable thing that has happened. 
the thing other than like milestones in my life, like getting married and having children. It is the thing that has happened in the world that I will always remember. I will never forget. I remember following every single step of the news coverage. I remember thinking, who did this? What's going on? I remember hearing that there was another one in the Pentagon. I remember hearing that there was another one that it looks like somebody stopped. I remember all the stories about phone calls from the plane. You all know what I'm talking about. That thing has so impacted my life, I'll never forget it. And what's interesting about that is that, personally, I had zero connection to it. I didn't know a single person that was involved with it. I don't know anybody personally that had a loved one there. My point, though, is that it was a big enough event that it has touched my life through and through. We think about it all the time. I want to point you now to the Word of God. With all due respect to our country and to the many families that lost loved ones that day, to an event that is even bigger, even more monumental, but it's truly touching and impactful on every single one of us. And if it is not yet, and certainly there are many people in the world who it's not impactful on their lives, then that is because we have not looked to it. We've not dealt with it. I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've spent months and months and months studying Jesus and who he is. We've seen Jesus preach in a way like nobody's ever preached. We've seen Jesus love in a way like nobody's ever loved. We've seen Jesus interact with people in a way that nobody's interacted with people, whether it be homeless people, hungry people, powerful people, whether it be people in authority. Jesus can deal with people like nobody else. We've seen him do miracle after miracle. We've seen him raise dead people and make food when there was no food. We've seen him speak to nature, and nature obeys just like that. Jesus is fascinating. We've come to understand that the reason why he can do all of that and the reason why he is so compelling is because he is God. God came to us. God is also a man, and God is in the flesh, and God is Jesus, and Jesus is God, and we, 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 we know that. And we were taken back the last couple of weeks as they dealt with him through trial and spit in his face and beat him and abused him and then crucified him. And even just last week, our first Sunday in 2018, as they buried him in the grave. But yet here we are at Mark chapter 16 where the Bible tells us God raised him up. Jesus is alive. I want you to hear at the very beginning today that this is the most important thing in the entire world. There is nothing more important in Fairdale, Kentucky than the risen Jesus. There is nothing more important in the United States of America than the risen Jesus. Now, I realize that many people don't agree, but it is the most important thing. And we must look to it, and we must deal with it, and we must not just leave church in a hurry to get to our youth league games without actually dealing with, is he risen? Is Christ alive? 
And if he is, this will indeed grip, control, change, impact, shape everything about us. And I'm praying that it indeed will shape everything about us. After Christ was risen from the grave, it changed everything. Let me read to you just a few scriptures that you know, even before I start in Mark 16, about this. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your soul and the saving of your soul, your eternity, the difference between heaven or hell comes down to is Jesus alive? Did God raise him from the dead? And do you believe that? Paul writes that in Romans 10.9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. According to the Holy Word of God, the Scriptures of God, the writings that were written by God through men, God raised Jesus from the grave on the third day. This is enormous. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit had come upon the apostles and Peter begins to preach that first Holy Spirit-filled sermon, in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held God raised the crucified Jesus up. This was in the preaching of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Peter, in a very different context now, writing a letter to suffering believers, says this, in the very beginning, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our new birth, the saving of our souls, has been done by the power of God because of the power of the resurrection. If those passages don't speak to the uh, value of the resurrection or the supreme importance of it, let me read one that hits a little closer to home. We're reading today from the Gospels. We have Mark's account of the resurrection. Garth just read to us Matthew 28. That's Matthew's account. Luke accounts of the resurrection. John accounts of the resurrection. Luke writes in Acts that Peter preached to the resurrection. Paul wrote in Romans about the resurrection. Paul wrote in Corinthians about the resurrection. Peter preached in Acts about the resurrection. Peter wrote in 1 Peter about the resurrection. But better than all of those is where we have the Apostle John writing to us the book of Revelation where John is in prison, in exile, by himself, on an island in Patmos. And this risen Jesus comes to him. It's not the plural revelations like so often it's called. It's the singular, one-time revelation of the living, conquering Lord Jesus coming to John to show him something. And boy, does he. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, it says... 
I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And this voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Look at this. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Y'all, Jesus tells John on that vision, in that vision, on that island, in that unique setting of John alone in exile and the risen Jesus coming to him, John falls down dead at the sight of the resurrected Jesus and Jesus speaks up to him and says, don't be afraid, I'm alive. I was dead, but I am now living forever. Y'all, this truth of the resurrection is anything but a little textbook doctrine that we believe that has no significance. We're not talking about something that religious people like to debate because it's just one little caveat of our uh, practice. Not at all. We're saying God came to us. He lived, he preached, he taught, he loved, he cared for us in such a way. He modeled for us humility, but then they crucified him. God took him off the cross. Joseph of Arimathea buried him in the tomb. And God raised him up. And he lives and he reigns. And every single one of us, indeed every person here and every person you know, will stand before him. We will answer to him. And the only hope of knowing him and being safe with him is knowing that he did it all for you. It's knowing that he loves you and he cares for you. When we talk about the resurrection, we're not here this Sunday to just pick up another piece of doctrine that makes us smarter or more intellectual or something like that. We are talking about getting life out of death. And we all know that the Bible teaches us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, the great point I'm wanting to make today is that to get the resurrection is to get resurrected. To get the resurrection and to understand it and to read it and hear it and believe it and understand why he died because of our sins and why he came because of his love and why God raised him up to show that he is king. To get all of that is to get resurrected yourself. I loved it and Joe does it every Sunday it seems. He plans the song so perfectly. We just sang seconds before I walked up here to preach this that the resurrected king is resurrecting me. And that is what I have in my notes and Joe and I did not talk about that, that to get the resurrection is to get resurrected. And so I'm wanting you to not leave here today saying, yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the grave. I'm wanting you to leave here today saying, Jesus rose from the grave and he is raising me up now with life out of death. Mark chapter 16 tells us of the resurrection. But before we read, just a few quotes R.C. Sproul says, Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection as an occurrence in history. The Gospels have it as their goal with the empty tomb and resurrection appearances 
And the book of Acts insists upon the resurrection. He goes on, Jesus' resurrection demonstrated his victory over death. It vindicated him as righteous and indicated his divine identity. It led on to his ascension and his present heavenly reign. It guarantees the believer. It guarantees the believer's present forgiveness and justification. And it is the hope of eternal life in Christ for the believer. The great mega pastor out in California, Rick Warren, says this. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, an event occurred that permanently changed the world. Because of that event, history was split. Listen to this. Every time you write a date, you're using the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the focal point. This is 2018. You know what that 2018 means? 2018 A.D. The year of our Lord. Before that, it was B.C., before Christ. You understand? There is nothing bigger than the resurrection of Jesus. Read with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 16. The first eight verses. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus. As I've already said, Matthew covers it, Luke covers it, John covers it. All four Gospels cover it, as I've pointed out. This is the whole purpose of the Gospels, is to show you that Christ was crucified, but now He's risen. He is alive, and we must deal with that. I want to give you four points today very quickly. Number one, exemplary women. Exemplary women. Number two, an empty tomb. An empty tomb. Number three, an angelic declaration an angelic declaration, number four, an astonishing response. An astonishing response. Number one, exemplary women. Let's walk through the passage. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. It was very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, sun had risen and they went to the tomb. It's fascinating that this is how that Sunday morning begins. If you look back just one verse, the very last verse of chapter 15, it shows us that when he was buried... Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Verse 47, the last verse of chapter 15. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. 
So the very end of that Friday, at the burial of Christ, those ladies are there watching. Saturday, nothing happens. It's the Sabbath. Nobody's really supposed to do any work. And then chapter 16 picks up early that Sunday morning, and we see these same ladies again now on their way. It's fascinating, and they are exemplary. It's fascinating their devotion to Jesus. It's fascinating their faith and to what extent they they had faith or they understood or they knew. We're not real sure. But their devotion to Him, their commitment to Him is absolutely outstanding, and they are exemplary. Notice that the men are not here. John chapter 19 tells us that the men are all scared and hiding and they were afraid of the Jews. They didn't know what to think. They were thinking that the Jews had gotten rid of Jesus and so now what's going to become of them? They don't know. All the men are hiding. The called apostles who had been with him for three years, day and night, they're not in the picture. But you know who is the women? This took courage. This took power. This took strength. This took an all-out, I don't care what anybody else says or does. This one that we know and that we love is gone. And I want to point out to you that so often in the world, women are exemplary. Church, we need to understand that. The reason why there is such a common category as as a single mom is because so often, sadly enough, men are gone and men are missing and men will run. When the problems come and the trouble rise, so often men will just get away from it because, quote, they can't take it anymore. And I know there's single dads out there. But so often women are seen as the ones exemplary, the ones who are pressing on, the ones who are dealing with it, the ones who are pressing through. And when something gets hard, they don't bail out. They will just suffer through it. And in our passage here, there are no men. We just have the women. Church, I want you to be the person, to be the Christian, to be the man or woman that understands that God made men and women equal, made them awesome, made them special, made them unique, and made them just the way he made them. But we need to have a big understanding of women. And here in our passage, we have this very thing. Now, some people want to say that the reason why they went so early is because they were scared of getting in trouble. But some people say the reason why they went so early is because they were going as soon as they could. And they were devoted to Jesus. I want us to be a church that highlights exemplary women that love Jesus. I want us to be a church that understands that women and women's ministry and discipleship of women and women that love God is absolutely essential to being a true church. It's absolutely the purpose and calling of God. And we see that here, the exemplary women. Now, it tells us that they went on the first day. They went early. The sun had just risen. This is why on Easter Sunday we like to do a sunrise service because the passage literally says the sun had just risen and others it says before the sun had just risen. So that's the context here. And they went to the tomb. And in verse 3, they were saying, what are we going to do about the stone? Now, this is fascinating. Why would they be going if the stone was there? Because nobody's going to roll it away. The way it's set up, this giant stone is able to be rolled by some big, strong people, but there's a little cut there so that once the stone is finally positioned, it's never going to move. It's kind of locked in. It's kind of settled in, and it's not going to be moved. And these ladies are going there wanting to uh, anoint the body, 
but they don't know how it's going to be rolled away. It really is fascinating, intriguing. It's kind of puzzling of why they would even be going, maybe just optimistic. But when they get there, verse 4, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. The problem they had been so perplexed by or worried about had already been solved or resolved. They didn't need to worry about it. God had taken care of that. And so when they get there, verse 5, they enter the tomb and they see a young man sitting on the right side. Some of the Gospels say that there were two there. This one says it was one young man, but it's really an angel. And the other Gospels tell us that it was an angel. He's sitting there on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. They were taken back by this. My second point is the empty tomb. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Now these ladies did not think that he would be resurrected. Remember, they were carrying spices so they could anoint the body. Again, it's hard to understand exactly what their faith was and how much faith they had as far as the resurrection goes because they're going to find the body. They're wanting that stone to be moved away so they can deal with the body. But they get there and the stone is rolled away and they think this is a good thing and they go inside and there's an angel there and the angel has some words for them and says, I'm not really sure what you're looking for because he's not here. And this is so much better than any anointing that they could have done to the body, any respect that they could have done, any funeral that they could have had, any sort of burial that they could have had for him. We have an empty tomb. Folks, I want you to understand that all that sin and death brought to Jesus, all that sin and death brings to the world was put on Christ on the cross, was put with Christ in the grave, but that Sunday morning it had all been overcome. You've heard me say it before, and I say it at almost every funeral that I do. There are three horrible things messing with all of us. Every person, every person living everywhere in the world, there are three terrible things. That is, one, sin, that we all sin. Two, death, we're all going to die. And three, the devil, he's trying to ruin our lives. Sin, death, and the devil, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, no matter how good or bad you are, sin, death, and the devil are messing up all of us. And I want you to know that in this passage here, with the empty tomb we have sin being dealt with and overcome death being dealt with and overcome and the devil being dealt with and overcome the empty tomb lets us know that God is greater the passage there's a passage in 1 John that says greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that says but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ when these ladies show up there at the tomb and the angel is there saying he He's not here. He is risen. It is letting us know that death has been overcome. That is the good news of Jesus. We have the exemplary women, and we have the empty tomb, and we have the angelic declaration. He is not here. He has risen. Now, with a word, what we have going on here is putting all of it into perspective. That's why it was so important for us to get here. That's why I'm thankful that y'all hung in throughout all the Gospel of Mark. And I want to show you just a few things. See, when you read the Bible, sometimes you forget what you've read. But I want to remind you that the 
Gospel of Mark began, Mark chapter 1 verse 1, by saying this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's how the gospel began. That's how Mark began. That's the first verses in the gospel of Mark. And what that's meaning is, John the Baptist came before saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And in that preparing the way, he is getting everybody's attention. Hey, 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 look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. He's coming. Shortly after that, you had the coming of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, you cannot forget this verse. It says, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, quote, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the one sentence sermon that Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God is here. No longer are we wondering what the kingdom of God is. When is it coming? Where will it be? What will it look like? In Jesus, the kingdom of God is here. Yet, because he had not died on the cross and risen from the grave, knowing that he is the king and knowing that the kingdom of God is here still brought about lots of curiosity, right? How and in what way? And you see that through the disciples. Well, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 8, following right, right along, you'll remember that huge passage in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, where Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's Mark chapter 8, verse 31, where Jesus said, this is going to happen to me, this is going to happen to me, this is going to happen to me, but on the third day, I will rise again. And you remember, because I made a big deal out of it, it says, he said this plainly, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So the disciples understood, listen to me, the disciples understood that the kingdom of God is now here. This guy is amazing. He is our Lord. We worship him. We'll do anything he says. They didn't understand it fully through his death. They didn't understand that religion is not so much let me look to God and do my best, but rather let me turn to God and seek forgiveness. Let me say that again. They didn't understand that religion is not let me look to God and do my best, but rather let me turn to God and be forgiven. Because they wanted everything that Jesus offered without the death, burial, and resurrection. Indeed, they couldn't even think of that. And so as Jesus tells them of that, they get upset and they start to rebuke him. Jesus then rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Well, it is in the passage right after that at Mark chapter 9 where the transfiguration comes. And Jesus says, you will see the kingdom of God and all of its power. Well, they saw a glimpse of it in the transfiguration. You remember that. But they see it all now in the resurrection. What we have in Mark chapter 16 is an empty tomb and an angelic declaration. Commentator Edwards says, the removal of the stone suggests that in all respects, the resurrection of Jesus is entirely God's work. The human role in the event is that of witness, not worker. The ladies get there and the tomb is empty. 
And in verse 6, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And then he says more. He says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. This is interesting. Because in our passage, the men are not there. The disciples were running and hiding. They were scared. The last we saw Peter, remember? The last we saw Peter, he was denying Jesus three times. But as soon as the resurrection happened, and all of life now has to make sense in light of the risen Christ, the angel says, go find the disciples. Who called the disciples? Jesus did. And if Jesus calls you, he will keep you as he's doing with them. But I want to point out something else that we all missed. I didn't catch it until I started really studying. Just a few sermons ago, in Mark chapter 14, right after they had taken the Lord's Supper, Jesus kind of predicts that they're going to scatter. And in verse 28 of Mark 14, Jesus says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you see that in 14:28? After I am raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. What did the angel just say to these women? Head on to Galilee. He's going to meet you there. Y'all, the mastery of Jesus, having every single step under control, the providence of God, the lordship of Christ, the sovereignty of God the Father, that he has our salvation planned out and that he's working through it, is seen here yet again. The angel says, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angelic declaration is beautiful, it's powerful, it's right on. But I want to make one more observation. Why do you think he said, and Peter? Isn't that awesome? Because I want y'all to understand just how huge grace and forgiveness is. Y'all, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Grace is somebody loving you when you don't deserve to be loved. Grace is somebody giving you something when they should not be giving you something. But God is just so grace. Regardless of how much sin and guilt and shame you have, God has more grace. We had just seen Peter boldly saying, no, I'll die for you. Jesus says, oh, no, you won't. You're going to deny me three times. Peter says, oh, I never will. Jesus says, yeah, you will. And you know what happens? Smack dab to his face right there with all the shame. Peter had just denied him. That's the last we've seen, Peter. But here at the empty tomb, the angel says, go tell the disciples, including Peter. Folks, if you're here today thinking, I'm just such a mess. I can't ever get it right. Even when I think I'm doing well, I'm still making mistakes. I continue to mess it up. Will you identify with Peter today? That a study of Peter leaves us saying nothing good about his following of Christ, but it puts all of his discipleship on the grace of God. Peter is truly a follower of Christ. You know why? Because Jesus has a hold of him. And if you're here today and you want to be a follower of Christ... Don't lean so much on how tight you're holding on to him, but rest fully in how much he's holding on to you. At the empty tomb, as he's on the way to Galilee, the angel speaks up to the exemplary women and says, hey, make sure Peter knows. 
Hey, any other worldly king would have said, you're not good enough, Peter, enough's enough. Let me find somebody that'll do the job. Y'all, our doing the job isn't based on us being good enough. Our witness to him isn't because we're so bold or so courageous or so strong or so good at it or such good speakers or preachers or, or so faithful or so well behaved. That's not our witness. Our witness is that the resurrecting king is resurrecting me. Our witness is that I believe this happened and it's happening now inside of me. Make sure Peter knows that because when Peter knows that, he'll go preach to the whole world that Jesus is alive. He will indeed turn the world upside down even though he was just denying Jesus, he will make sure Peter knows. The angel was saying, Jesus is alive. He is not here. He is risen. And when you come to believe that, he does it inside of you. He makes you alive. One of the best verses in the whole Bible is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's a long one, but listen to it. Paul says... I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Y'all, the resurrection is saying this defines our lives. Say what you want about me as far as talking about me, but Jesus now lives inside of me. Whatever he's doing, he's doing in me. If he's living, he's living. If he's forgiving sins, he's forgiving sins. And the Bible shows us we know what he's doing, therefore he can be our identity. And the only way you get Christ, indeed the only way, is by faith. Believe, trust. Look to him. We have the exemplary women. We have the empty tomb. We have the angelic declaration. And then finally at the end, we have this astonishing response. The angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. In our final verse, verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. I love the word astonishment. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's an interesting way for Mark to describe the end of the tomb scene. They were afraid and they weren't talking. Now it's all going to come to light here in the coming moments. And the other gospels tell us a lot more than Mark does. You read Matthew and Luke and John and you hear, you hear, actually John tells us that John and Peter, once the women told them, John and Peter took off running to the tomb. And it even says some detail, I've told you before, it says that John was faster than Peter and so he got to the tomb first. But it says that John was nervous and so he didn't go in. It says that Peter, once he finally got there, bold as he always is, just shot straight into the tomb. Once Peter went into the tomb first, John followed him. See, there's more details to the story if you read in Matthew and in Luke and John. And we know that what's soon going to happen, go tell everybody. For that is the message that comes to us from the Bible. An astonishing response that says, if Christ is alive, I have got to tell people. But here it's interesting because they are silent and afraid. I read to you at the beginning that Mark begins his gospel by quoting Isaiah 40, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Do you know that it is in that same passage of Isaiah 40 where the Bible says, do not be afraid. Go tell the good news. And I want you to see here in the Gospel of Mark that where we see the connection to Isaiah's message of Jesus is coming, get ready for Jesus. We are also to see the connection to Isaiah with, once you get Jesus, it's all about living in light of the resurrection. An astonishing response that says, I'm going to tell somebody about this. Their response is fearful and not talking, but the true response is go and tell for we are astonished. Do you remember in the early parts of Acts when they put the disciples on trial and they told them they could no longer preach Jesus? And they said, whether it's right or not to obey you or to obey God, y'all will have to figure out, but we have to obey God. But this is what we do know. We cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. An astonishing response I want to ask you this today in closing did this really happen three questions did this really happen you've got to deal with it you should not leave here you should not let your children grow up or your grandchildren grow up without wholeheartedly fully devoted asking did this really happen is this true from there we ought to ask why Why did it happen? What was the purpose of it happening? What caused him to die? What raised him up? Where's the power that can cause the dead to live? Because I've been to umpteen funerals and they've never come back. What was the purpose? Why did this happen? And then lastly, what will you do about it? Will it define your life? Do you want it to define your life? Is it shaking you right now to define your life? Are you aware that it's not? Will you turn to Christ? The great pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, writes, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of that that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So I ask you here today, did this really happen? Yes, it did. Why did this happen? Because you and I have a sin problem, and God loves us bigger than that. Thirdly, what will you do about it? Will you turn to Christ? Are you here today realizing that you've been a part of church or you've claimed Christianity, but you don't feel that the resurrected king is resurrecting you? Are you here today saying that you acknowledge that the resurrection is a part of the Bible's teaching, but you're not sure that you've been resurrected? I've been saying that to get the resurrection is to get resurrected. Would you be honest enough here today to say that you may have some sort of leanings toward Christ, but you've not been defined by the newness of life that overcomes the death of sin? Would you believe in Jesus? Would you trust in Christ? Would you be a real Christian? Would you say, i got a lot of things in life that are trying to define my life, who I am, and things I've got to worry about, and honestly, several things I need to work out, but I need to be a believer in the living Jesus. 
Because in our society today, there is a lot of pressure on us Christians to live according to the teaching of Christ. And I realize that that can dominate what we're thinking. Well, Jesus taught this, so I've got to live this way. And Jesus taught that this was right, so I've got to live this way. And Jesus taught that this was wrong, and so I've got to live this way. And we think so much about that. But I want to get you even past that in thinking about this. He died for you and your sins, and he overcame it. He's living. He lives. May we commit ourselves to him today. And if you haven't, do it today. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so very much that Jesus is alive. Father, we pray now that you would lead us to respond that Jesus Christ died. That we would have the resurrected life inside of us. In his name we pray, amen.